Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. The world premiere of Eurydice is made possible with generous support from the Bernard and Lenore Greenberg Opera Fund and the National Endowment for the Arts. Additional support from the donors to the Eurydice Consortium. And special support for this conversation came from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation and KCRW, official media sponsor of the Eurydice Found Festival. My name is Stacy Brightman. Let me introduce our two great visual artists who are creating the world of Eurydice tonight. We have our costume designer, Anna Kuzmanik. And de- our set designer, Dan Osling. Welcome them. Okay, I'm going to get started. First of all, a big shout out to Chicago, where both of you have a, kind of a focus for your career. But, you know, Anna, do you mind starting for us and telling us, I know you've had the furthest journey from where were you born? Tell us about where you were raised and how did you, you know, get here tonight? Hi, everybody. I'm really nervous. So <laughs> also because of ESL. Um, so uh, I'm from Croatia. When I was born, it used to be a different country, uh, Yugoslavia. And uh, I came to study theater design uh, in the U.S. uh, to actually complete my master's degree in Evanston, which is a a little city outside of Chicago at Northwestern University. And that all happened about 20 years ago. And um, at that time, I wasn't quite sure I wanted to do theater. I thought I wanted to do fashion. And then maybe later today I can talk about what made me actually realize that uh, theater and costume design was the career path for me versus fashion. And that's where I met Dan Osling at Northwestern University. Was there a vibrant theater community? I mean, was your family all involved with fashion or theater? How did that lightning bolt strike you and to, to make that journey all the way to the United States? So that's a great question because I wasn't I wasn't really um, uh, familiar with the profession of costume designer. I from the very early age I was interested in telling stories, and usually words are not really my strongest uh, trait. So I I would tell stories through drawing, and that was very interesting to me. And my mother was an artist, and so we would draw and create these stories. Uh, and then I thought, because I was uh, very interested in the in the in people and drawing people, and I thought, well, that might mean that I'm interested in fashion because I draw all these people that look different, that are different shapes and sizes and look different, and and so I uh, e- enrolled in the uh, fashion design program back home um when when uh, when i was 18 and that program was unique because uh it was a fashion design major and co- theater costume design minor and that's how i was introduced to the world of actually theater and i realized then studying those two art forms uh side by side that i am really interested in telling the stories about the people and not about the clothes. And fashion tells wonderful stories about the clothes. Clothes are the star. And in theater, people are what the stories are about, and they happen to wear clothes. (laughs) (laughs) Or not. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so that was where I found my interest. And then, of course, I was introduced to the wonderful world of theater and ballet and opera. That's fascinating. And Dan, can you tell us similarly, are you from Chicago originally? Tell us about how you ended up here all that way and here in Los sure. Angeles. Sure. I, uh, I was born in Chicago, and uh, but I moved to a small town near Wisconsin. Uh, my parents are both actually uh, blue-collar factory workers. They weren't uh, nobody, I no artists or in my family. And uh, I went, we were the first generation to go to school, and my brother was studying business, and I had no idea what to study. But So I studied business just because he was the only person I know who ever went to college and, and uh, did that for a couple years. And I ended up taking an astronomy course, uh, which was, I don't remember much about astronomy, but but the course just blew open my mind. It really was like a political science or a philosophy course more than astronomy. And, and he really made me think about what I wanted to do with my life. And, and by the end of that quarter, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, but I knew I didn't want to stay in business. And I um, called my parents, I remember, and said, I think I want to drop out of business, which I thought they'd be really angry about. And they were actually very supportive. And I mean, scared, but supportive. And then, um, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know anyone. In, and I didn't know anyone in my life who did something they loved. Everybody I knew hated their, their jobs. And, uh, and so I thought, well, what do, what do I, what do I like? What brings me joy? And I, I loved rock. I was a rock and roll kid and I loved the con the lighting at concerts. Just like, I just love the lighting design. And I also, my father would take me to films on the weekends. We'd go see matinees of really films that a, a little kid should probably shouldn't have been seeing, but <laughs> they're really adult films. But, uh, but like that really, that just was, so the one was, uh, it really introduced me to storytelling. And so I took an introduction to theater course in order so I could take the lighting course. And then I took a, a sort of introduction to film course. And, uh, and really that sort of, sucked me into theater. I I'd never, I don't think I'd ever seen a play before that. So it was a sort of fluke. I love that. Well, so you see, you both got these kind of circuitous routes. It wasn't a direct road to, to theater, as it were. Of all of those other classes and studies, when you think about that long, strange journey to where you are now, I love that you talked about the astronomy class. I mean, was there what were some of the things that you are still learning about? What did you love learning? What, is, what was important to you in your education? What were some of the most important things you, you know, like, thank goodness I took that class? I mean, theater is about everything. Theater is not about theater. Theater is about every, every time you work on a play, there's a whole new world opens up. And to me, that's like my favorite part is that I have to be like, suddenly I have to um, sort of be a specialist in this world and that time. And, and so, uh, so I, I love research. I, th I know Anna does as well. Just research to me. And history is really something that, like when I was taking it, I sort of didn't appreciate it. Now I wish I could take all those courses again. And uh, art history and uh, political history, all of that stuff I think is, uh, you know, as a designer, you're like, you're sort of an architect, but not really. You're sort of an interior designer, but not really. You're sort of a historian, but not really. Sort of a, a stage director, but not really. You know, we, we do all sorts of, we do all these things. Uh, so to, I, I, like, I like that part of, of our job, is that just every play I work on, I, it's a new world that I have to work on. Same, same question for you, Anna. What was that 
funny set of skills that you learned or that class you took where you thought, thank goodness I took that? Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, in theater, you have to have this great specificity. But at the same time, you have to be able to really think in, in a broad, abstract way. And so when I was studying fashion, uh, we, were, we would have these classes where we would need to come up with concepts based on a word. Like, a, like an entire fashion concept based on one word or a feeling. And then on the other hand, when I came to Northwestern, uh, one of my favorite classes early on was text analysis. And uh, I learned how important it is to actually be able to think and put all of your uh, you know, as an artist, you are who you are and you think a certain way and you need to be objective. That's one of the things that we were uh, taught in the classes that you should never judge a character, even though some characters are really uh, so <laughs> bad people or whatever. Uh, you know, you should you should not really be judgmental, but you should try and see the story and the characters as objectively as you can. Um, and then at the same time, you are who you are, and so you 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 put yourself in in your work and your work your scenic design, your costume design is look, looks like that because, because of you. Um, and so for me, it was always all through my education and even now as I'm working, keeping that balance between this incredible strong inspiration that's actually very subjective and then going back to the piece, analyzing the text, analyzing in, in case of an opera, analyzing the music, and is it what I'm doing really in service of the piece, or am I just doing something because, oh, it would be cool to have a purple coat on stage? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a little veer here. You know, again, Los Angeles is not your home. And how long have you been here for this project already? A couple weeks? A month? Well, the first time... I came here was uh, in August, August 31st, actually, because it was a holiday. And uh, I was aware that it was a holiday, but not many people in the room were aware that it was a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it was, it was six months. Uh, we started working on this piece maybe nine months ago or ten months ago. Yeah, we got it a, year, a little over a year and a, a year. couple months. Okay. That we knew. Yeah. Um, but so the so we were here often. I was here pretty much every few weeks, every three weeks or a month for a certain amount of time to oversee uh, different phases of uh, production of the costumes. So since August. Okay. So so what I'm wondering is. You know, a lot of us think about, oh, well, my career will be, I'll get a great job and I'll go to work, you know, five days a week, maybe six days a week. I'll live in this place. I'll live in this part of town. How do you handle a job where you have, you know, how many cities do you have to be in in a year? And, you know, how do you, what's your life yeah. work balance right. like? Do you see your families? Yeah, I I always, uh, with fr some friends, I always have, we've made a joke that we're like artistic migrant workers, you know what I mean? Like set designers and costume designers, lighting designers, we we work all over the country, all over the world sometimes, and we uh, generally, like my life, on, on a normal show, I'll maybe go see the theater and have like an artistic meeting, then I'll come back and maybe have a design meeting, 
and then there'll be uh, the presentation, and then uh, I go to construction. I have to like take you know go to the shop and make sure it's being built correctly. Work with the painters and stuff, and then eventually you come and you come for the like the tech week, and you're there for a couple weeks. Uh, this has been unusual for me in that. Uh, I actually came at the end of August as well, and I've just been based here. I'm living in Taipei for the last couple of years, so uh, so my partner was here doing a film. So uh, so I just it was an opportunity to be here. So we were both here, and uh, so the, it's also we did this. We sort of came on a little late for opera. Sometimes these projects uh, are two, three years you work on it, and we've been working on it a little over a year. So that also it was really compressed that. That gave me allowed me to be at the shops a lot more than I normally would, and uh, which you can sort of make decisions and catch problems, stuff like that. So it's been this has been an unusual uh, project, but but yes, as designers were, and and we don't just work on one thing at a time. Uh, every year I probably work on between eight and twelve shows. So. You, they're not all at the same time, right? So they don't all open at the same time or you're in trouble. But generally, you're starting a show really early, conceptual. Maybe you're a little further along. Maybe things are in the shop. Things are further along in the shop. And then you're, you're teching a show. So they, they sort of wrote, you know, you sort of move through that. that but. And do you have balancing your life and staying healthy, you know, having a home somewhere? How are you man how much time are you actually spending in whatever you wherever it is you call home? How much time have you spent there this year? I always find out a tax tax time. <laughs> when you... I was gonna say the same thing. You do your taxes and you count the the days you were away from home and you're like one hundred and forty two. Wow. Oh my gosh. Okay. It's usually it's about it's around half. Sometimes a little above, sometimes a little below. And similarly, again, you know, not to get into too much of the business, but I'm sort of intrigued by the business. How do you, I mean, you're kind of your own boss, right? You have to get these jobs, you know, a job might last, you know, you usually get like a fee, right? Kind of a flat fee for a job. So again, it's, it's a funny thing that most of us don't really have to sort of think about is, you know, yourself as a business. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Well, one thing uh, uh, I guess I, I, I want to say is that uh, I always thought, oh, I could never work in an office from 9 to 5 or 10 to 5. That would be such a nightmare. And and I think I was right about that. Now, looking back, you know, 20, 25 years. Um, but at the same time, when you're an artist, you know, you... Uh, people think often think that you know because you love what you do it's kind of a hobby even though it is a job and i think the challenge is also that you as, as a person also sometimes are able to tell yourself okay now i need to stop because i've been working on this for 20 hours straight or you know i need to be able to take a break or to step away um I think that uh, the biggest thing for me, the biggest challenge when I was done with grad school uh, in which you work on projects and you have deadlines and those deadlines also mean a grade for a class you're taking or for the practicum. When you are uh, a freelance artist, uh, as most of the theater designers are, you actually really have to have the discipline to, to uh, set deadlines for yourself and meet the deadlines that are set for yourself. So for example, for something like Eurydice, we have firm deadlines for when the designs are due or every phase of the design. 
but somehow between those days or dates, as as a freelance artist, you have to have the discipline to to set the schedule for yourself and figure out, you know, by this date I need to be done with this phase or by th this date. And sometimes things take longer than you anticipate, mm -hmm. and sometimes the timeline gets really scrunched, as as Dan was saying. The usual design time for an opera is way longer than a year. And actually then, I remember that we didn't really quite yeah, seriously start working no. on this until April. Yeah, no, this was terrifying. This was the scariest project I've ever worked on in terms of really? the compressed it was. timeline. It was, oh. it was sort of crazy. Yeah. Wow. But, it, but I, I think the, it's worth saying it was crazy, and I think we were all scared to death. And we... We once it, it we were very careful, and once we started, we sort of like it just click 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 click. It really sort of beautifully unfolded, in a way that sometimes doesn't happen. So uh, while it was super compressed, it also was really uh, came together sort of smoother than normal. Actually, I agree. Well, that's kind of a, I want to segue a little bit into the specific production. Dan, you mentioned, and, and, and Anna, you mentioned as well, you know, kind of like the research. And, you know, you're always having to maybe learn something new, right? You're kind of a perpetual student, I guess. How does one research or prepare or start to create a concept where it's a world you're creating, the underworld, that there is no research? I mean, you know, where's the research for the underworld, for a place that nobody has ever been or come back to? Start to tell us a little bit about your process for this project. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll just start uh, in general, and then maybe we can make it a conversation. Uh, I remember, so, so when I first worked with this director, Mar with our director, Mary Zimmerman, uh, I was just fresh out of grad school, and uh, it was a project called Argonautica. And I, and, and I remember that Dan, uh, my colleague, a way more experienced colleague, uh, for early on in the first design meeting asked this question. Um, so what is the movement of the show? Is it clunky or is it smooth? Is it? So now that sounds like a very random question, but actually in the design terminology, those are such important questions when you don't really have... Um, uh, uh, a very specific, let's say, play yeah. that that exists. And in this case, we did have very specific libretto and we did have the music, but it's a new piece. And so a lot of it was really creating the world that never existed before, creating the world that is at the same time inspired by the ancient story, the, the Greek myth, this legend, but also contemporary. And it's from a different point of view than uh, than uh, this story was ever done, and so it was all really new for us. And so I think, as a designer, I cast a really wide net. And uh, knowing, uh, uh, I uh, working with this same team for uh, for quite a few times before, we we kind of do have a very smooth way of collaborating, where in a way we bring these images and and talk about them. Uh, uh, at first, in very abstract terms, but but we know that with Mary, sh she loves to um, take an an old myth and then uh, look at it through the contemporary eyes. So for me, I looked at you know Greek art 
and I looked at, read the origins of the myth and also some other um, uh, Greek legends just to kind of get into the story. But then at the same time, this is not quite that story. So I also looked for inspiration in art and photography. And then we look at the images at first and talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Those first meetings, we really sort of just bring in stuff. For me, it was, I mean, when you see it, you'll see it. it's not, it's not set in a certain place. It's not, you know, there, there's a little bit of a place at the beginning, but it's really sort of a, um, it's a very emotional place. Um, and you know, my mom passed away a few years ago and, uh, and, and so like it's, I, I for me, I felt like I was sort of mining, really sort of, uh, those experiences and those losses and, and, uh, and really was looking for artwork, uh, photography, a lot of sculpture, uh, site specific works, uh, that, um, that sort of just felt right, which is not always how I feel. I mean, I always do that, but this felt like it was pr pr predominantly sort of just finding work that felt right to me. And I always look for a lot of architecture. I, I feel like my work is, very architect. I mean, the the thing I think that I, I felt like is I I didn't want it to be about oh well watching someone have a like oh let's watch those people have an experience. I wanted to try to create an experience for the audience. So I wanted to create almost like a piece of artwork that you that you were in that sort of unfolded around you and that sort of brought you in. So so that that felt important to me that it somehow reached across and brought people in. Well, and, you know, we get to be a little bit like Eurydice, right? You know, she's this person who's now all of a sudden going to this world and trying to figure out the rules of it, trying to figure out the landscape, the architecture, you know, the fact that there are stones who are going to be, you know, singing to her. I guess you, you, you welcome us in that same way that Eurydice gets to kind of go into this and not necessarily know how this whole place works. What's your favorite moment of the play and or opera? That's an interesting question. Is there a difference between your favorite moment of the play and your favorite moment of the opera too? Something you want us to look for. Well, one thing I want to say is that for me, the access, so I talked about research and, you know, you, you read a piece and listen to the music. And then, of course, the first step is going to, to do some uh, research of the facts. But then I really like to, to dig into my own emotions. And then was talking about his a little bit. And for me, it's really that feeling of uh, when you fall in love and 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 it's a human experience and not everybody was uh, in their life has been in love but but most people at some point experience love and experience heartbreak and experience if it's not a heartbreak but you know split for all these different reasons and for me that was really this this giant inspiration um and I loved, uh, I love many moments in this play. One of them is when Eurydice is in the underworld and she, you know, when people go to the underworld, they forget. They don't know who they are. They don't know where they came from. They don't understand words or language. And she meets her father and her father uh, finds a way to make her remember who she is and make her remember who he is. And that moment when they are play, when he's teaching her the words to me is such a quintessential theatrical moment and he reads to her from king lear which 
you know, in Shakespeare, uh, Shakespeare's play King Lear, it's about a father and father's relationship with his daughters. And so that's this amazing moment to me. And it's kind of, it's very funny. It's kind of funny. And they play, they play with words. So I love how that moment, that very happy moment sits in between other moments that surround it that are very gloomy and sad. And, and then if I may, my other favorite moment is towards the end of the play, because I want to go back to when we're in love and then we're out of love and we've been hurt. Sometimes it's difficult to be generous when you're hurt, when you're when you were left, you know, for whatever reason, you're the one who who was left alone, and uh, and Eurydice is writing a letter to her husband's second wife, and she's writing to her how how she should treat him and how she should make him happy, and that's those are two amazing moments for me. How about you, Dan? Oddly enough, I, the, your first moment is really I, a different thing, but th that moment with the father where she's, she's, he's helping her remember herself and he, there's nothing in the underworld. There's, there's, there's no, you know, there's nothing. And he sort of out of a piece of string creates like a, a, a place for her to sit. And, uh, it's just this act of, of generosity and love that I just find really touching and and I think Mary has has done it in a really beautiful strange uh simple way that I think is is sort of lovely you know I don't know about you but when I went to the theater when I when I was new I just thought like the theater was like medicine or something like it just was like like torture and and I don't think it has to be like torture and I I I think I I, I hope I hope the pr production tonight is is I hope it's dyna dynamic and sort of surprises you in, the, in that it's accessible and that it's relevant to you. It's not, it's not, uh, it's, it's, it's not meant for somebody else. To me, like, I must say walking in here, it's like unbelievably, this is my favorite part of my day today, walking Aww. in and seeing your guys' faces and thinking that you're going to see this, this piece of artwork is really, it's really moving actually. And it's really, in this day and age with the news and all that's going on, it's like unbelievably, uh, hopeful to see your guys faces it's and really also, powerful no nobody ever saw it yeah, yeah. you're the first you're the one first. in the world you're the ever. first give yourselves yeah, ever in the whole world <laughs> ever and and we couldn't do it without you you're absolutely necessary to this equation you know that's an interesting theme i don't think i ever even thought about that until this moment to hear you both talk about some of your favorite moments you know sarah rule our playwright and our librettist has talked about the play, the original play largely came out of this grief that she had. Her father uh, died when she was comparatively young and she was very, very close to him. And, and so she wrote this play coming about this, you know, the kind of the love that Eurydice and her father have. And you always hear about it being a love story of Orpheus and Eurydice. So you have these dual love stories, if you will. And as you just described it, you know, again, that notion of what does a, a beloved parent do for a, a, a darling child? It, it's, you know, it's teach you words. It's bring you into the world. It's to, you know, help set and create a world for you because you kind of come in as a, a great empty vessel. And, um, and I hadn't thought about sort of the rebirth of, of, of Eurydice until you, you sort of talked about that in that way um, and the loving gestures of that parent. Well, okay, so the question is, an original play, it's an original myth. 
and now it's being transformed into this opera, what kind of evolution or adaptation will we see tonight in this version of this story that is probably at least 3,000 years old? So you know what's really great uh, about this? In the myth, um, Eurydice dies. <laughs> Boom, done. <laughs> and then Orpheus is the star of the story, and Orpheus does all these things and goes and, you know, lures, or not lures, but actually uh, makes all these creatures in the underworld um, uh, let him pass, and he actually gets the Lord of the Underworld to to uh, release Eurydice because his music is so beautiful. So as I'm talking, it's all about Orpheus. In this rendition, it's actually Eurydice, and you learn what happened to Eurydice when she dies. And, and she's actually really thinking and rethinking what her life was. And it's not really that she's waiting. In the myth, you think she, all she does is waiting for Orpheus to come and save her. But it's not quite that simple. So it's an interesting twist or, or take on the story. How do you look at kind of like the emotions, maybe even sometimes like subtext, you know, maybe things that are not actually even spoken, but um, to really shape, you know, the color, the world, the text, the, all those creative artistic choices that you made. What else did you find in the opera text or subtext that uh, helped you discover those things? I think it primarily, in a way, I think we're primarily swimming in that world. The beginning is, is sort of firm and sort of, uh, you feel like you're somewhere, but then it, it really, we wanted to in a way, have this disorientation of uh, descending. And so in a way, I think the set is is dealing with uh, presence and loss. Uh, and 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 I think I'm dealing in a way i'm I'm playing with light and dark, uh, positive space, negative space, uh, 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 an object, and almost like a like, do you guys know the the artist Giacometti? He created these incredible sculptures that are just like a human being, but like burned to a to a, a singe. And there's just there's this incredible dignity to them, but there's there's no flesh. They're just like the essence of a human being. These long, uh, tall, uh, dignified statues. Uh, I'm playing with that of just this of of this this object and then this just things being burned away to their essence. Um, and so really we're sort of in a way sort of playing around in, in above and below loss and, and being full and losing. Um, all of those are, and, and how do you deal with stuff like that? I mean, if you're dealing with, you know, some play and you're in New York at this period, you know, you really sort of jump into that. But when you're dealing with those things, you're, you're really sort of creating image. You're using image and and trying to sort of make people feel things or surprise people or create things that maybe don't answer questions but create questions and make 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 your mind expand rather than sort of get limited down and sort of oh I know that it's so and Anna's costumes are amazing in that way. Each of you. Give us a little moment in the physical, the costumes, 
the sets, lights that you've created, something that we might miss the first time around. Like, give us something. If you have like a secret thing you want us to take a look at, look for tonight, a detail. One of the things we were talking about was how we were wondering, you know, when, okay, this is just very abstract what I'm going to say, but when people die, do they know that they're dead? And so in itself, it's a question, you know, do people, do, do people even, are they conscious? <laughs> so uh, we, we, we like the idea that when you really see um, comes into the underworld, that there is something to her that looks like she, she, she doesn't, she, she forgot, she doesn't know what happened. And so we also like the idea that uh, slowly the underworld is affecting her. So maybe you can look for for signs that she's been affected by the underworld. I'm curious if if you would if you would recognize those. That's a good tip, a good hint. How about you, Dan? Anything that you know, kind of a detail of the set that you know, something uh, um, that you'd like us to kind of take a look at? Just I, I guess opposites or you know the yin and the yang. I mean, just just just. Uh, 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 different energies that uh, are are playing against each other. Good. Okay. I, I don't want to. Sort of... Anna's got one. What about the which floor are they, are they on <laughs> <laughs> when they when they go to the underworld? There's a well. There's a special device, a, a special mechanism for going to the underworld that might surprise you a little bit. And actually built into that mechanism is also, you, you mentioned it earlier, you've all heard of the, the river Lethe? Lethe is the, the water that you either drink or bathe to forget. And this is kind of an idea that actually goes across many, many cultures. That notion of maybe going to the underworld or going to the next realm is too painful if you're, if you're carrying the first world with you. And so maybe it's even a kindness to be able to forget, to be able to release your memories is painful and a release. How many, how many of you have been to operas before? Do you Raise just your come hand. About, yeah, we You know, one thing I would suggest being sort of someone who didn't come from this world is, is there a little synopsis on there? of the play, read it before you, it really makes, <laughs> it really makes, <laughs> makes, makes you enjoy the story more. It can be a little overwhelming, I think. So give it a quick read. What's the lesson you learned that you might want to, sh you know, if you could pass it on to all of us, what have you learned? Maybe the easy way or the hard way. And what would you like us to learn? Well, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but for me, the thing about theater that's so powerful is, is empathy. You know what I mean? Like you, you, theater only works if you, as Anna said, if we, you don't judge the person, but you put yourself in their shoes and you, and you, you're able to sort of live that experience for two hours and actually learn and, you know what I mean? And change, you can be changed. Art can change you. I mean, it, when, when I think back in my life, I mean, those art, the moments in life that I remember are, are in galleries and in theaters and, you know, it's very, it's very powerful. And I think theater to me, the thing about theater that is like the, is so powerful is that you're, you're not doing it alone. It's not you on your phone or at home in front of a screen. You know what I mean? You're surrounded by hundreds of other people. You know what I mean? With blood flowing through their veins and, and hear them sort of reacting to it. And you're sitting there watching other human beings. That's the primary medium in, in, in the theater is people. 
And, and so theater is made up when one person watches another person make believe in front of them. You know what I mean? And that's like so primal. That's like thousands of years old. You know what I mean? From sitting around a, a, a fire pit sort of telling stories, you know? And I think that's just, we do very few things in our, in, in our lives, our social anymore, our actual social experiences. And, and I think theater is really powerful in, in because of that. Do you think, in the way you describe this, again, just moving from theater to opera, are you finding any differences there? Or again, is it just amplified, if you will? It's not amplified in opera, but it is. Maybe the emotions are. I think the scale is definitely different. And I think that, you know, in opera, there's that music. And, and so the visuals really need to complement the music. And I think that the big gesture is what's what's really also important as you're transitioning from theater to the opera. I'm talking now just as a designer to to you can get away, I think, in, in the opera with bigger, bolder gestures because they really have to be so in order to to live up to that music. And sometimes in theater, I'm sorry if I'm digressing, but in theater, you know, uh, pe people ask me, you know, when you design a modern show, you know, what do you think is a good costume in that little space? And I think, well, the one you don't see. If you think that they are wearing their own clothes, then you did well. And in opera, it's kind of opposite. You have to you you have to see that big gesture. And if you look on the screen, and you know, there is there are these pops of color, there are these bold, bold shapes, and and just I feel like opera really calls for that. Hopefully you feel liberated and, and able to have that just flow over you even more powerfully, you know, with the power of the image and the music and the text. My friends, I, I can't believe it, but our time is almost up. I need to let them go and, and have the dress rehearsal. Would you join me in giving them a giant, Dan and Anna, a giant round of applause. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.